Please stand for the reading of the word. We're in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 follows very closely Daniel chapter 5. We saw last week that in a moment, in a day, the Lord brought to an end the great Babylonian kingdom. Belshazzar was murdered. The city was overtaken by the Medes. And it wasn't very long until we're into this particular moment that we find here in chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel, excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the precedents, and the, but they could find no ground for complaint of any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition of the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the documents so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees as he had done previously and prayed and gave Lord. You may be seated. Reformation Sunday. Celebrate 500 and what, five years ago, something like that, that the 95 theses were nailed to the door of the church. And from there, the printing presses began to smoke. They were a fairly new invention at that time. And those remonstrance, those topics for discussion, was what we know today as the Protestant Reformation. A half a generation later, in the University of Paris, by the name of John Calvin, we love, I, and I imagine most of you join me, love his paths we walk principally. It is according to his teaching and his lectures and his, his um, teaching about how we were to live in the institutes of biblical instruction and encouragement. It is interesting that one of the things we do from Calvin and Knox and the great continental reformers, one of the things that we are most noted for is exposition of Scripture. That is explaining the meaning of the Word of God. And the great principles we follow are the historical, grammatical, theological pastoral principle. We look at four great lights that shine upon the world to be the Word of God. We believe it to be principally faithful in every way with respect to history. Good old-fashioned stones and bones history. 
history that matches what you would read in a good history book of antiquities. If those other sources, uh, regardless of how old they may be, we believe in looking at the historical, historical reading. Our preaching, that is, we preach the history of salvation from the day that mankind sinned in the garden until the day he knelt in the garden and took upon him. And it's the story of Christ and his coming, Christ and his reigning, Christ and his saving, Christ and his redeeming, Christ as his leading and comforting and shepherding our souls. And it's a historical narrative, picks up way back in the antiquities, back into the primeval area of history, going back to the flood and comes all the way through Abraham, the call of Abraham, the captive of the people in Egypt, the coming out of the people from Egypt through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, the years in Canaan under loosely confederated tribes and where in which everyone did was right in his own eyes, bringing together the days of the monarchy with first Saul and the experimentation there. And then finally David establishing the great kingdom, which reached its full flower and full manifestation, fulfilling all of the literal promises that God had made to Abraham during the days of the great King Solomon. But we don't stop there. We're still a thousand years away from the coming of Christ. We move through 500 years of theocratic rule in Canaan by the king of Judah, and then of course Israel as well as they split into two. And you know the story there. God eventually brought each of them to their end. The northern kingdom by way of the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by way of the Babylonians. And that's where we are, and we get to Daniel. We've reached that point in history. We're still five centuries away from the coming of the babe in the manger in Bethlehem. But we're getting closer. We're still 500 years away from the advent of Christ upon earth, wherein he inaugurated, commenced, began, ordained, established laid root to his kingdom, which would start in those precarious days of the Roman Empire, continue throughout the remainder of history and continue all the way through eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. So now we live in that time when the kingdom of God has come, realized in so many ways, and yet is not in any way fully manifested, not here on earth. We live in those days after the coming of Christ the first time, with respect to sin and salvation, waiting the time when he will appear the second time without regard to sin, but this time for resurrection and judgment and eternal righteous rule. Now, I say all that to say that John Calvin, in his lectures on Daniel, follows the historical, grammatical, theological pattern of interpretation, and he goes to the pastoral or to the practical. And one of the things that Calvin does, which he doesn't do in every instance, but he does in the case of Daniel, is he stops for a moment and puts the spotlight upon the man Daniel, the character of Daniel, not just the great historic flow of the visions and the empires and all the things we've talked about, things to come and all of that, but just to stop and isolate upon the man Daniel. And in so doing, Calvin doesn't say this, at least I didn't catch it. <laughs> I don't believe he says it, but this is my inference. 
What we have in Daniel, in many ways, is a model of how a man should live in these intermediate days, these days when the kingdom of God has come in so many ways and yet is not fully manifest yet. Those days in which a believer in the one true God lives his entire life for all practical purposes from the alien culture and the temple, the priesthood, everything, even the, the, the organized prophetic ministry remained for the most part back in the land of Israel. And so in these days, Daniel lives his whole life. This episode we see here this morning was toward the end of his life. He started the study. Nebuchadnezzar was the king under which Daniel went to Babylon and was brought up. A very young man, a man we saw then who had a good bit of resolve. We saw that he determined in his heart he was not going to eat the king's swine nor drink the, the king's wine. He was going to keep himself holy unto the Lord. Had the whole Babylonian years, they've now come to an end. We're starting the new kingdom of Medo-Persia, which changed overnight. And Daniel is still faithful to the Lord. And listen to the description that it said here. He said he had an excellent spirit within him. Even in Babylon, even in exile, Daniel maintained a strong, godly character, upright in his ways, true and faithful in his dealings. He was not only added to that spirit of prophecy that had been given him, which he had exercised the kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, words and words of judgment, fearful and faithful to do that, but he also evidently was a superb administrator. He knew how to coordinate the efforts of others. He knew how to get the most out of those under him. And every time you turn around, if you remember, we didn't talk about it much, but Daniel was always shift-moded. He was put into a better place. And this happened in, uh, in Babylon, the city of Babylon here at this time, with the death, the tragic quick death of Belshazzar, and the Medes coming in and taking the city almost without any problem, and then sort of holding place for a few short years until the derivative and descendant families of the Medes, the, the Persians, would take over under Cyrus, and then we would have eventually... We'll get to the story one day, maybe. The people will be allowed and promoted in a return back to Jerusalem. But we're not there yet. We're still in Babylon. We're still now in the same town. But it's been taken over by an entire new regime. And as so often happens in the ancient world, the slaughter of certain people was imperative in the transition. Our transitions of government in this country have not come to that yet, but it seems like that was a pretty incredible thing that you would see. But you would also notice that there were also uh, places where it was a good bit of continuity. Uh, the ancient potentates had enough sense to know you don't tear up society all, all at one time overnight. 
that there has to be transitional and there has to be gradual development. And those who were seen to be competent, those who were seen to be capable, those who seemed to have a loyalty to their work and to their job and to the welfare of their people rather than to a particular crown, received special notice. And remember, Belshazzar had promised Daniel to interpret the handwriting on the wall, which Daniel did, and apparently he was rewarded with that. He didn't get to enjoy it too much because it only lasted just a day or two. But when the new conquerors came in, they recognized this quality person that they had. Not only was he uh, a third in, in his government, but King Darius began overseers. Bear in mind, Daniel is an alien. He's a foreigner. He's not native to this part of the world, but he is Judea. He's an outstanding capability. That might be a lesson to us. Regardless of what's going on in the world, who's in charge, regardless of pagan culture, regardless of the difficulty and the struggle, we still need to be productive. We still need to be fruitful. We need to be functional in the culture in which we exist to Thing that is honest, upright, is the way God finances his kingdom. It is productive Christians that have the money and have the resources to support the work of God. And God's people are expected. In the case of Daniel, he excelled at being extremely valuable to his employer and extremely faithful to his constituency. And because of that, he was excellent, an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to place him over the whole kingdom from his fellow rulers, would it? I think it would, and I think it did. In fact, that's what you see here is the pure politics of envy. The politics of envy looks at anyone that has, and the politics of envy looks inside his soul and said, how can we manipulate the wealth out of the hands of those that have it and put it into other hands. And that's exactly what has motivated many a corrupt administration of government down through the centuries is simply the systemic violation of the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And what it takes to want someone else's wealth, to desire someone else's property, to call for redistribution is nothing but a heart that is filled with the seedbed envy from the very, very beginning of some of the other commandments. That is the seedbed, the tenth commandment, steal. Eventually they figured out a way to take away from Daniel what was rightly his. And it was a, conni a contrived plot. Now, one of the things that's said in the very end of the, the verse says, Darius was about 62 years old. I take offense at all those interpreters who say that meant that they were trying to emphasize how old he was. He was a man of old age. And some of you ought to take offense at that too. But I think that's probably literarily what we're looking at. It emphasized he didn't come like Alexander the Great and some of the other men of, of antiquity to his power in his prime or even in his youth. Instead, he was 62 years of old, old when he came to power. The, uh, the extra biblical material we can find out about this particular king was he wasn't king for very long, and he recognized that he would rather fight than rule. He was a warrior king, and he, when he got something, he knew somebody else could take care of it better than he could. So he recognized that in Daniel, that Daniel was potentially that man, that number one, that prime minister. He could be Joseph to Pharaoh. 
He could be in that role and in that category for pal- uh, the king. And so he had his eye on Daniel for that role about who's next in line to be the number one of the leaders of the kingdom. Well, this vicious plot to get rid of Daniel, literally to find a way to have him not just uh, taken out of office, but banished or even who knew they would never find Daniel. So we shall not find any ground. Daniel was squared away in every area. There were no weaknesses in his game. He was solid, good, competent in what he did as an administrator. They couldn't find any fault there. In fact, when they investigated, they probably found he was superior than they were. But they thought there's one place where David has, I mean, where Daniel has a of the king with respect to Daniel's religion. I don't know how much Darius knew about David's history. I keep calling him David. Daniel's background, most recently by the queen mother to Belshazzar as to what all Daniel had done for the empire over the decades, where he naively had to depend upon those around him for his good and unfortunately those around him 55 that talks about how personal enemies are out to get you some of us have experienced that you know they may take the form of flesh and bone they may be spiritual but they're enemies of your soul and they are seeking to trip you up oh he was going to get job in trouble with god and that's what was going to happen here they were going to get Daniel in trouble breaking. So the plot is it thickens eminent good sense during the transition of government. For a 30-day period, only 30 days, we would have the king's word, the king, any other, the king's edict being supreme, authority beside the king. The king liked this. This was a good program to foster loyalty and to begin his uh, kingdom off on a pretty good foot. And they, he bought it. And he set down the edict, he made the declaration, he sealed it, and there was a tradition that followed him even more closely, and that was the law of the Medes and the Persians. In the ancient world, law is law, but sometimes law, if you have inscripturated law, law that is documented, you have a constitution, you have something everyone can point to and say, this is the path, walk ye in it. And it's 30-day prohibition against any prayers or any adulation or any loyalty to any other supreme state. So now Daniel is going to come afoul of it, and this is how he is. He's going to do as our title says. He's going to do as he had pattern. By the way, that passage Isaiah, I mean uh, Psalm 55 that I mentioned, there is a and the, and the problems against a personal enemy, and David is praying the prayer the, for deliverance and knowing how to deal in personal relationships. There's a little verse right in the middle in the morning, in the evening, and at noon. The psalmist. That was the pattern that Daniel had adopted of his home, no doubt a very nice home in Babylon. He had the upper room up there and windows in it which were wide but toward Jerusalem. And as he would come morning, noon, and night, he would have what we call private worship. He would pray before his God. And they said that he did this 
as a routine. He did this as part of his dream. Maybe that was the reason Daniel was so effective. Find guidance, so efficient and competent and uprightly. He had divine guidance in his soul. And some of these guys knew it, and they knew if they could catch Daniel praying to some other god, some other divine authority other than the king, they could entrap him, and he would be guilty of the violating of this edict, and he would be thrown to the lions. This is precisely what happened. But let me point out as I close a couple of things about Daniel. Number one, he never tried to hide it. Here he is in a strange life. He's in exile. He's in a foreign world. And witness, public witness to his home or in a nearby God. Anybody that wanted in his posture before the Lord in prayer, he had made a regular habit of seeking the Lord thrice daily. The morning and the evening sacrifice were well established in ancient Jerusalem. Those were times of prayer. But that noon hour... At noon hour was more of a siesta. Daniel turned it into a prayer time. And he said he worshiped the Lord. He bowed down before the Lord and worshiped the Lord you know, in a sincere, personal, private worship ceremony. We mentioned the postures in prayer, laying prostrate upon the ground or the floor bowed over with our knees under and our heads bowed low and our neck bent and tucked down in contrition and humility. Even, even times of prayer don't find people sitting in their leisure, lounging upon their couch, praying. Now, Ron, you're going to be a stickler about that. I understand. I've spent a lot of time driving and praying. But the Lord wants to hear from his people. The Lord stands ready to bless. The Lord can shape and mold our character as Christians devoted to him, publicly witnessing to his lost and a crooked, perverse generation. I think the Lord calls us to that personally. Let the king, let the Lord providentially allows, but let's, let's stay right before our Lord. Windows open, arms open, heads bowed before the Lord in worship and in quiet devotion to Him. You never know, the Lord may work a miracle on your behalf in the near future. Call upon Him thusly.